Donald Trump, sworn in as president 100 days ago, America has rarely seen such success. Oh, man. Thank God. Thank God. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the central coast of Oregon, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, Oregon, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9. WLRI in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. Palinville, New York's 102.9 FM WLPP. And Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week, at least. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Good to have you with us. Uh, that uh, spot I played, that piece of that spot I played, Donald Trump uh, giving us uh, the greatest success any president has ever seen in the first hundred days. That's actually an ad for the campaign, the re-election campaign for Donald Trump, the 2020 re-election campaign. Uh, incredibly enough. And uh, they actually had to pull it down for a time because it had it included some footage uh, that was illegal or that was in at least in violation of campaign finance laws showing uh, Donald Trump with a uh, uniformed H.R. McMasters, who's now his uh, national security advisor. But uh, that was in in violation showing a, a uniformed officer like that was apparently in violation of federal election laws. Uh, yeah, that's right. You are not allowed to have an on duty, active duty uh, military person involved in any kind of political activity because, of course, the military is supposed to remain neutral. And oh. so having that as an impl- is in, an implied endorsement, even if he is the guy's boss, it's still against the law. Oh, stickler. <laughs> that, of course, is Desi Doyen, our stickler uh, uh, producer. Um, of course, that's the, the the least of the problems that Donald Trump and the rest of the country have. And I got to tell you, this I, I just want to hit this very quickly. Uh, we're going to get to our, our guest uh, shortly. He's standing by. But uh, speaking at the Milken Institute Global Conference on Monday, according to Variety, Commerce Secretary <laughs> Commerce Secretary Wilbert Ro- Wilbur Ross. Recall the scene at Mar-a-Lago on April 6, when the summit with Chinese President Xi Jinping was interrupted by the news of Donald Trump's strike on Syria. Uh, Ross told this uh, this crowd there, quote, just as dessert was being served, the president explained to Mr. Xi 
He had something he wanted to tell him, which was the launching of 59 missiles into Syria. Ross said it was in lieu of after-dinner entertainment. Yikes. And the crowd roared with laughter, apparently, uh, as Ross added. The thing was, it didn't cost the president anything to have that entertainment. No kidding. He said that? Yes, he did. Wow. The entertainment of uh, bombing a sovereign nation without authority uh, from Congress in violation of international law, killing, I think, uh, uh, five Five uh, the Syrian military and about five or six civilians, as I understand it. Yes, that's entertaining. But the, uh, I would say that the people that were assembled there at the Milken Institute mm-hmm. are likely folks who profit from war. So they may have been approving of that. Oh, it's that all, means their stock will go up. Oh, it's all nothing but fun. Adam Surer at uh, The Atlantic uh, tweeted, Just a room full of rich people laughing at bombing another country. From a $200,000 a year private club, Adam Johnson of, uh, of, of The Nation wrote, uh, This country is run by psychopaths. Yeah, no kidding. Ross is, of course, a billionaire financier. He's new to government service. This was a lunchtime conversation with David Rubenstein, co-CEO of the Carlyle Group, according to Variety. And Ross reflected on his first impressions of public service. He says, I've been heartened. I thought the quality of people in the government was not as high as it has turned out to be. There are actually quite a lot of very good, very serious, very intelligent people wanting to do their best. It's just they've been trapped in a fundamentally dysfunctional system, which I guess they are now freed from uh, by uh, by Donald Trump, who has expressed similar things. Who knew? Who knew that these people were actually so capable after spending all of those years beating them up uh, as terrible and not knowing what they're doing. Rick Perry, remember, as governor of Texas, he's now the department of uh, the director of the, the energy department. The secretary of the Department of Energy, who did not know what the Department of Energy did. So I guess that's kind of what the quality of people that Wilbur Ross is talking about. That's the quality quality of people of Wilbur Ross. Yes. These are basically people who knew nothing about government who are now running our government. And... Uh, I would argue psychopathically, uh, if if Wilbur Ross's comments there are any uh, indication. By the way, to say that uh, that entertainment didn't cost us anything, well, those 59 missiles cost, uh, I've seen estimates, anywhere from half a million dollars to 1.5 million each. So we are talking about tens of millions as much as $100 million that just cost the U.S., uh, not to mention, you know, everything else, uh, just the cost of the missiles alone um, for the uh, after dinner entertainment of Donald Trump and his friends. <laughs> just unbelievable. All right. L- let me get to uh, I had to throw that in. Wasn't planning on talking about that, but saw that and it drives me nuts. And I know it's a short drive, but unbelievable. Uh, This from AP, a little more than half of American adults regularly pay for news through newspaper and magazine subscriptions, a little more than half Uh, subscriptions to uh, newspaper, magazines, apps on electronic devices or contributions to public media, according to the Media Insight Project, which is a collaboration between the American Press Institute and the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. That's actually good news that a little more than half of adults uh, actually pay for their news these days. 
They note that it's not only gray beards either. Although younger folks are less likely than their parents' generation to subscribe, close to 4 in 10 people under age 35 also pay for at least some of their news. Younger people are more likely to express a desire to support a news organization's mission as a reason for subscribing, according to the uh, project's study. Tom Rosenstiel, the executive director of the American Press Institute, said, We sense a shift. There's this perception that people don't want to pay for news, especially young people, because they can get things from social media. We found that's not true, he says. Nearly one in five Americans donate money to at least one nonprofit media source, such as public television or radio, or a digital news site, such as ProPublica, according to the study. The New York Times, in fact, saw slow and steady growth in its digital subscriptions from about 400,000 subscribers at the end of uh, uh, at the end of 2011 to more than a million at the end of 2015. During 2016, the number of subscriptions for some odd reason during 2016 shot up to almost two million. According to The Times, a spurt that is contrary to President Trump's assertion that The Times is, quote, failing. Even before the post-election controversy over fake news, The Times had found uh, new subscribers who were concerned about the reliability of some stories they saw online. And, quote, they understand that you get what you pay for, according to David Rubin, senior vice president and head of brand for The New York Times. Rather than simply tout what a subscriber would receive, The Times has been running an advertising campaign that focuses on the news organization's mission and the importance of journalism, including one that shows the dangers faced by a photojournalist covering the conflict between Iraqi forces and the Islamic State. You may have seen that on TV. The newspaper also, according to Rubin, recognizes the importance of building a relationship with subscribers instead of simply making sure an article is seen by as many eyeballs as possible. Well, there's some good news, I guess, uh, for the news industry and for the New York Times, perhaps some rays of hope. But the New York Times, curiously enough, seems to be kind of shredding that goodwill of late with the recent hire of a right-leaning former Wall Street Journal columnist and a climate science denier by the name of Brett Stevens, who ran his first column at the paper over the weekend, resulting in a uh, reportedly huge number of angry readers calling in to cancel their subscriptions in response. So is it smart? Is it smart to hire someone like Brett Stevens? I'm conflicted on this, you know, a right winger like Brett Stevens. I, I, I'm I'm a bit conflicted on it, especially uh, especially over this weekend that the White House actually spoke in serious terms about the literal idea of doing away with the First Amendment to the Constitution. Literally, they talked about it. We'll play that in a moment. Um, we'll talk about that, in fact, and and much more that makes me wonder, well, is protecting the First Amendment the most important thing? Is canceling subscriptions at a news outlet like New York Times uh, the most important thing in order to uh, you know, show displeasure at the fact that they have, in fact, hired a climate science denier? 
I don't know. I got a lot of questions about all of this, and I'm hoping my guest, uh, the great Will Bunch of the Philadelphia Daily News, will be able to help me answer some of those questions. We'll take a quick break, and we're back with Will Bunch right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Just stop your crying, it's a sign of the times. Yes, it is. Welcome back. Welcome to the final show. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Writing at the Philadelphia Daily News on Monday night, columnist Will Bunch uh, noted, There's a compelling case to be made that this past weekend was the most significant moment for the future of American journalism since the days of the Pentagon Papers and Watergate. In Washington, where hundreds of top Beltway journalists and their B and A-list celebrity uh, dates rallied for the first non-presidential White House correspondence dinner since Ronald Reagan was shot in 1981, icons Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein tried to rally the troops. Woodward told the assemblage that, quote, the effort today to get this best obtainable version of the truth is largely made in good faith. Mr. President, the media is not fake news. Bunch went on to write that the message apparently did not reach Pennsylvania, where President Trump, before a rabid throng of supporters, was attacking the media with a vigor that might have made some of the 20th century's worst tin horn autocrats blush. Trump's straight out of Nuremberg style, <laughs> says Bunch, was arguably just a more extreme and more bitter version of things that he said before. But the next morning, his chief of staff on Sunday morning, Reince Priebus, poured out the chaser that the White House was open to a constitutional amendment that would strip journalists of First Amendment protections. There was what he said about opening up the libel laws, uh, tweeting, the failing New York Times has disgraced the media world, gotten me wrong for two solid years, change the libel laws. That would require 
as I understand it, a constitutional amendment. Is he really going to pursue that? Is that something he wants to pursue? I think it's something that we've looked at um, and how that gets executed or whether that goes anywhere is a different story. But when you have articles uh, out there that have no basis or fact and we're sitting here on 24-7 cable uh, companies writing stories about constant contacts with Russia and all these other matters. Do so you think the no president should be able to all. sue the, the New York Times for that, stories he doesn't like? I think. I think that I think that newspapers and news agencies need to be more responsible with how they report the news. I am so tired. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Everyone, it's about whether or not the president should have a right to sue And I already answered them. the question. I said this is something that is being looked at, but it, it, it's something that as far as how it gets executed, where we go with it, that's another issue. Something that is being looked at, that was uh, White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus on Sunday on ABC This Week. Uh, being interviewed by Jonathan Carl, uh, who asked him, uh, you know, would he actually, would Donald Trump be interested in a constitutional amendment to change the First Amendment? Is he really going to pursue that? And Priebus says, I think that's something we've looked at. Um, Make of it what you will. We'll go back to Bunch here for a moment. He says, given the general ineptitude of the Trump administration so far, the notion of rallying political support to pass such a measure in 38 states, which is what would be required to pass a constitu to adopt a new constitutional amendment, Bunch says that is laughable. But the sheer audacity of even proposing that dictator move was chilling. It probably should have led every paper and TV newscast in America writes bunch. But for many everyday news consumers, that wasn't even the biggest media related outrage of the weekend. So what was the biggest media related outrage over the weekend? And was it more noteworthy than the White House chief of staff suggesting that the president of the United States was considering a move to somehow amend The First Amendment, the first protection freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment in order to allow the head of the head of state to sue people who say things that he doesn't like, which, as Josh Marshall of Talking Points Memo notes, amounts to abolishing the First Amendment. That, writes Josh, should set off everyone's alarm bells instead Alarm bells were set off this weekend as a flood of unhappy New York Times subscribers called the paper to reportedly cancel their subscriptions after a new New York Times op-ed writer by the name of Brett Stevens, who previously worked at the very right-wing Wall Street Journal op-ed page, where he was a rabid anti-Trumper and a rabid climate science denier, And he was also awarded, by the way, for his efforts with a Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 2013. Rewarded with that and a new job at The New York Times this week, where he filed his first column, taking uh, uh, taking a, a direct swipe at climate science, challenging it as being potentially as unreliable as the scientific pre election polls that predicted Hillary Clinton would defeat Donald Trump last November. Well, Plenty for everyone to be upset about today, I think, as usual these days. Joining us to discuss all of the above and much more is Will Bunch, the longtime Philadelphia News columnist and now senior writer and author of the long-running Attitude blog at the Daily News, which he describes as uber-opinionated, fair, but dangerously unbalanced. And that's important. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's also the author of uh, three full-length books, 
and three Amazon Kindle single ebooks, including 2015's The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream. Will Bunch, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. It has been too long. All right. I Listen, uh, Will, I had hoped to talk to you uh, today about your take on Donald Trump's first 100 days, because you did a great column on that. Uh, and, and, and it was somewhat contrary to my own thoughts. So I want to get to that as well, if we can. But news seems to move so quickly right now. <laughs> Uh, your column was so good on on both the the First Amendment concerns and the New York Times matter. I want to start there. Um, you, you know, considering the White House press secretary conceded or at least claimed that the president of the United States was considering ways to abolish the First Amendment. Should that have been a bigger news story this weekend than what happened at the New York Times? And, and should it still be a, a, a bigger uh, news story than the hiring of a climate science denying columnist uh, at the times well i think it's i think it's definitely a very big story there's no doubt about it i mean as i pointed out i mean if you, if you look at it with a sense of political realism i mean this, this is the gang that couldn't shoot straight in the white house right now right so right. the idea i mean uh, you know those 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 of us of a certain age are old enough to remember uh well i was was a teenager but i do remember the push for the uh, equal rights amendment back in the 70s mm-hmm. and you know when that started out i mean it seemed like a majority of the country was on board you know women equality we're all for it blah 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 and in the end they could even they couldn't get 38 states to go along with that you know with equal rights for women and so i think you know amending amending the cherished first amendment um which which people pay lip service to even if they don't mm-hmm. often support it in actuality is uh, uh you know i, I can't imagine them pulling it off but i mean just the fact that just the fact that you know the government of the United States, the president and his chief of staff, who, who by the way, is supposed to be the reasonable one, you know, the fact that they would that they would make these threats, uh, you know, absolutely it's newsworthy. And and the reason the reason I wrote a piece that was largely about the whole Brett Stevens controversy, but also, you know, wrapped in this whole First Amendment thing, is I, I feel there's a relationship between the two, which is, I mean, my point being that. Uh, you know, the president of this country is under assault uh, in in ways that it hasn't been, ar- yeah. arguably never before, but certainly at least not since the Nixon era, right? So, um, uh, so the so the media to fight back needs to be on its A game. It can't <laughs> it can't make unforced errors, mm-hmm. which you know uh, the Brett Stevens thing arguably is. So, so to my to my mind, that's the that's the relationship between the two things. But you know, at, but I mean, you know, when, I mean, when you have when you have the president of the United States and his top aide threatening to go after the Bill of Rights, yeah, that's a pretty big deal. You, you would think it would be, but <laughs> you, but you're right. You know, we're coming at, at the end of uh, 100 days here, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, where this guy has made a lot of threats, a lot of promises. He's been able to accomplish Almost none of it, right? And well, that, that's the big that's the big debate, and I, I imagine it's the it's it's the debate that you and I are having or are going to have about mm-hmm. Trump is, uh, you know, is he dangerous or is, or is he incompetent, uh, or can you be both? I kind of think I kind of think he's both, but um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, clearly, clearly incompetence and, and not being able to get stuff done has been one of the major themes of the last. Uh, Hundred and what is it now? Hundred and three days or yeah. whatever it's been. And and, and I do wonder, uh, you know, th- that people look at him as you describe as the you know the gang who couldn't shoot straight. And it's hard <laughs> enough to amend the Constitution 
uh, with people who know what they're doing, much less exactly. with, a, with a guy yeah. like this. Uh, yeah. but, but let's let's talk about the New York Times. Uh, you, you write in your latest piece that the Times editors, the Times editors who hired Stevens, were following a tired playbook that's over a century old, even as the nature of both journalism and how readers relate to the news has changed radically in the last decade. What What is that century-old playbook that, uh, as you see it, and how has the nature of journalism now, uh, particularly in these last 10 years, and I think there has been a huge shift, uh, yeah. how, how has that changed and, and readers' relationship to journalism uh, changed in those past 10 years? Well, yeah, I, I, I don't want to get too wonky about it, but I, I personally find this fascinating. I think the history of journalism in this country is kind of fascinating. But, I mean, you had different phases. I mean, I mean, going back to the 1700s and the 1800s, the press was highly partisan. You know, you had Democratic newspapers and you had Republican newspapers. And, and that made perfect sense to everybody. People said, well, of course, you know, a guy spends good money to buy a printing press, which was exorbitantly expensive back then. Why shouldn't he uh, be able to, you know, use it to use it to push his own opinion or his right. own view of the world? Um, you know, th- that changed, you know, when, when America started to really grow, you know, population-wise in, in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when, when the middle class grew and people had a little bit more disposable income and people were interested in stuff now like, you know, baseball and boxing and, 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 and music and the opera and whatever, um, newspapers said, hey, you know, if we get associated with one political party, nobody from the other political party is going to buy our paper, and that's going to be really bad for business. So, you, you know, so you've got this, this model emerged where newspapers, uh, the news section needed to be balanced. It couldn't have an ideological point of view. And even on the, even on the quote, opinion page, you know, we're going to represent a, a variety of opinions. You know, we have our editorials, which maybe maybe we have a liberal bent or a conservative bent, but but we're gonna, if, if if we're a liberal paper, if if we have a liberal editorial page like the New York Times clearly does, you know, let's hire some conservative columnists so so everybody gets a different point of views. But you know, part of the point I make, and and I mean, a lot has changed in the last 15 years. I mean, the media has changed. Um, newspapers used to be monopolies because if you lived in a town, the only way to get news was when that truck showed up with the newspaper. Right. And that was before the internet, right? So, um, and so you would uh, you would lose customers, you would lose readers if if you were too uh, far to one side or the other, yes, right? Right, exactly, and that's changed now. Now with the internet and people can access any news source, and I, you know, I can live in, you know, I, I can live here in in Philadelphia and read the LA Times every day if I want, or mm-hmm. if that's the paper I like, or whatever, uh, or or certainly read, you know, the, you know, the ideological press, you know, Rolling Stone or the New Republic or whatever I want, you know, whatever I want. So, um, you know, uh, the, so those constraints, you know, newspapers aren't monopolies of information anymore. So whatever moral obligation they had to present a balance doesn't exist anymore. The the other point I tried to make, which it, it's kind of complicated, but, you know, I mean, the nature of our politics has changed so much. I mean, it used to be, well, conservatives are for small government and liberals for big government. And, and, that, and that's still true to a certain extent. But also, I mean, the real heart and soul of the conservative movement uh, these days is, uh, you know, resentment of elites, you know, resentment of science, resentment of, of uh, you know, journalism and reporting mm-hmm. uh, and uh, which, which the Brett Stevens first column that caused so much controversy it really wasn't that much about climate. It was really about don't trust experts, you know, mm-hmm. don't trust. And, I mean, to me, the irony of that was just incredible because, as, as, as you may have seen, anybody who watched the Oscars, for example, maybe saw the, these expensive ads that the New York Times produced and right. is running. Really, the first time they've, I think it's the first time they've ever run a national ad campaign of this scale. And uh, it's all about 
the truth, you know, and how the truth the truth is more important than ever. That that's the mm-hmm. cornerstone. And clearly, you know, um, the implication there was this is this is uh, this is who we are post the election of Trump. You know that now that Trump is president, uh, the truth is under fire. But we do the hard work to give you the truth. And meanwhile, oh by the way, we went out and just hired this guy who you know <laughs> thinks the truth is is a bunch of crap, basically. You know, and he, <laughs> right. he's our new colleague. You know, it, and and I mean I mean the Times has has seen its um, really impressive numbers from what I've seen in terms of the growth and the number of subscribers. I mean you can you can be you know what I am, and I don't know about you, but what I'm sure a lot of listeners are. You can be a digital subscriber where you pay, mm-hmm. you know, ten dollars a month for the digital, digital access, all digital access to the Times, and you know they they have three million of these subscribers, not just in New York, obviously, but but all but all but all over but all over the country, mm-hmm. and um and um. So um, and and uh, by the it, way, well, there uh, as you noted uh, that that uh, that campaign that uh, truth is more important now than ever. Apparently, their numbers skyrocketed yes. after that uh, after they started running that campaign. And right, that they've gotten at least several thousand, uh, several excuse me, several hundred thousand new yeah. digital subscribers because of that. And. <laughs> I, I, whatever those people subscribed to the New York Times for, it wasn't to read Brett Stevens. I can tell you that it wasn't to read. Right. It wasn't to read climate science denial, and it wasn't to read, um, you know, this, this whole tired trope of resentment towards the elites. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it was kind of fascinating that he hung his whole argument about why we should be skeptical about climate science because experts told us that Hillary was going to win. You know, I mean, I mean, it was like really, you know, I mean. Brett Stevens may be an anti-Trumper, as, as you were mentioning mm-hmm. at the top of the segment, but um, that's just that's just very much in line with the Trump playbook, you know. Really, I mean, it really. But, but on mean, the really o- the uh, yeah. on the other hand, Will it. <laughs> I, I, you know, because I'm I'm looking at this, I'm wondering, you know, if this is the journalistic hill that progressives ought to die on, and you know, it, it, to me, yeah. Uh, yes, he's he's a denier. His argument is that hey, you know, sometimes science gets it wrong, and so questioning science itself, uh, you know, is the you know is appropriate here. I I was not particularly offended by uh, by the argument, and it's interesting. I'm wondering how many people are actually outraged about what he said versus people suggesting that. Even having a climate science denier writing at the paper uh, itself is uh, oh yeah you know, no I agree with you canceling. I mean that was that was kind of that was kind of the you know maybe not expressed as well as it should have been but that was kind of kind of what I was saying the point was mm-hmm. that it wasn't so much about the column itself although I didn't think the column was very good at all but it wasn't so much that but it was just. Um, the brand is like what you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, journal journalists are really terrible about understanding. You know, we're, we're not business people, obviously, which is why our bus- one reason why our business is doing so badly. <laughs> but um, you know, and, and we don't know a lot about branding, but we should, you know. And you know, the New York Times is a brand; it stands for for certain values, right, to the people mm-hmm. who buy it. And uh, hiring somebody like Brett Stevens is is perceived by the readers as a slap to those values. So you'll see people go to the extreme of, in some cases, canceling their subscription. I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of that. I mean, I still, uh, you know, 
I still find it. I still find the New York Times a fantastic source of information for what's going on around the world. I really, honestly couldn't imagine I would probably, you know, suffocate if I uh, lost access to it. You know, so, and they do a lot uh, of great climate work. They've got a, a you know a climate right. desk. They've just hired uh, our friend Brad Plumer is is uh, at the paper now. Uh, they do a lot of important stuff. I wonder if progressives end up hurting. And I don't want to be one of those concerned trolls, Will. Uh, yeah. But you know, I I, I wonder if uh, progressives end up hurting the paper more than they actually help it uh, you know, by pulling their subscriptions at this oh, point. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Well, I mean, I mean, the bottom line. I, I, I hope the message I was trying to convey was that I, I want the New York Times to succeed. I want them to do well. I want them to, I want them to prosper because, uh, you know, when, when when they're working on all four cylinders, which mm-hmm. is most of the time, they really are what they say they are, which is uh, something that counters the the uh, you know the the baloney that's out there in, in Trump world, right? So. Um, uh, so, you know, I guess, I guess maybe I'm a concern troll in a way because, you know, I'm saying, hey, I just want you to do good. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just here to say that hiring Brett Stevens is going to hurt you. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, and I, and I don't think you either are the kind of consumers who would cancel our subscriptions over something like this. But, but at the same time, you know, there are many people out there who their view of the world is such that, that they find this so offensive that some people are going to go away, you know, it's, um, and, it's, it's, a, it's a real issue. And of course there is something to be said, uh, you know, to making sure the New York times understands these concerns. I mean, look, my, my partner yeah, and I, right. uh, Desi was, Doyen, yeah. we, we've been, uh, you know, we've been putting out a green news report syndicated. It's a radio segment. Uh, we've been syndicating it for more than eight years, often complaining about media failure. Uh, but, uh, you know, frankly, I've seen much worse than this one. So that's why I'm wondering <laughs> if it's, you know, worth dying on this hill, but you, suggest you make an interesting uh, point uh will bunch in this in this column uh, you suggest basically the new york times should fire all of its right-wing columnists and the right-wing wall street journal and the washington examiner etc they should fire all of their quote unquote liberal columnists uh and then you know every paper then has a point of view does that well, it, it, it might solve the problem to some extent that we saw over the weekend at the New York Times. But does that solve the? Is that good for the country? Do we want, uh, you know, newspapers who only uh, look at things from one point of view? I, you know, maybe I'm trying I, to be I, too I, fair. I, here, I, I mean, I did write that. I mean, I, I do have some, but I do have some, my my feelings on that are somewhat complicated. You know, I mean, I, I do have mixed feelings in the sense that. I mean, the thing is, for me personally, I mean, and maybe maybe part of this is because I'm a, a journalist and an opinion writer. But I mean, I, I mean, I go out of I go out of my way to expose myself to views that challenge what I believe, you know. And I, I mean, I listen to people who I can't stand. Like, you know, I'll listen to Rush Limbaugh, not a lot, but mm-hmm. when I'm in the car and it's that time, I'll say, I'm going to listen for ten minutes to see what these people are blathering about today, because I want to know. I want to know. I want to know where they're coming from, because if I'm going to be in the war of ideas. You should know the other side, right? You know, so so I mean, I mean, that's me personally. But and, and I I think generally it is good for people to be uh, exposed exposed to viewpoints. But I, on the other hand, I mean, like I said, I mean, I mean, the New York Times, uh, uh, you know, is a business. I mean, I think there are ways and venues that 
you know, in, in terms of like one-shot op-eds that they commission all the time from people, and and certainly in terms of the lively discussions, you know, the comments they have on their articles. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are many ways that opposing viewpoints are going to still find their way into the system. I'm I'm just wondering if you you want to say, hey, Brett Stevens or or you know Ross Dothat or whatever you say his name, you know, <laughs> that these are our guys. You know, I I don't know. I don't know if that's really necessary anymore in 2017. I have serious doubts about that, to be honest. And and you do make a very good and important point that, uh, you know, when there was monopoly control of these paper, I mean, there's still monopoly control, but you only had access, if you lived in a certain town, you only had yeah, access right. to this one paper or these two papers. You sort of needed those points of view that you don't really need anymore uh, because you can get it elsewhere. Not that they're, you know, not still worth reading. But um, it, it's very interesting. Well, speaking of which, how is the uh, how is the failing uh, Philadelphia Daily the News? And I but I, I call them failing because you know apparently you're not succeeding anymore unless you're failing in the Trump era. Uh, how are you guys doing? Are you guys holding up? I know you had a recent uh, fun drive over there, subscription drive over there. Uh, are are you surviving, uh, Will Bunch? Well, it's hard. You know, it's it's hard. It's hard for news organizations to. Uh, to use a word that I, I can't stand, but gets used all the time, you know, monetize our operations. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we we have, you know, we've lost, um, I don't know the exact number, but but we we had more than twice as many journalists. But for the, between the two newspapers that uh, are, are together now, the Inquirer and the Daily News, I mean, we used to have more than twice as many journalists as we do now. When I say used to, I'm talking about just like 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so we, we've lost that many people in that short of time. Uh, and then last year, uh, I mean, they they still published the Daily News and the Inquirer separately, and there is uh, occasionally something of a separate point of view. But I mean, basically, last year, to as part of the cost savings, they combined the staffs of the two papers, so uh, you don't have the same diversity of viewpoints. Um, you know, but I, but I will say in Philadelphia, I mean, the Philadelphia media scene is more than just. Disorganization, you know. Thank God. I mean, uh, you know, n- nature abhors a vacuum. So there's there's a number of small, like spunky news organizations, uh, despite all the layoffs, despite the economic problems. And so that that's good news, you know. But um, you know, but it's tough. I mean, I mean, uh, the newspapers here are looking to go to the same model that the New York Times and the Boston Globe and other papers have, where there'd be something of a something of a paywall where you could only read. You know, mm. ten or X number of stories a month for free. We have not implemented that yet, but that's that's what they're looking to do. And I don't know how it's going to play out. You know, I mean, people here, I think in Philadelphia, like to get their news for free. So I don't know. I don't know how that's. I don't know how that's going to work it, out. It, it but, is. Um, it is. It is disturbing. I mean, the future for everyone. You know, it, it, it's a very. It's a very. It's a very fraught time for the media. And I think people don't. You know, it, it, it was interesting because um, you know when Trump was elected and when you had. You know the New York Times and their Truth ad campaign, and you had the Washington Post and their whole democracy dies in darkness, and there, mm-hmm. and, and and you and I have both seen all the articles about how the digital subscriptions to those two organizations, news organizations, have skyrocketed. But it's ironic because they're not the ones. I mean, not, not that they couldn't do better, but they're not the ones who are really on the edge. I mean, right. the ones, the papers on the edge are the ones, you know, in cities like Philadelphia or Chicago or Houston or. or uh, you know the the, the second tier metro cities where um, uh, where the papers aren't going to have the national readership like the Washington Post and the, and the New York Times have uh, because because once you get on a more local scale with the internet it's very hard to uh, here's that word again monetize mm-hmm. uh, you know when, when your appeal is more regional and not national like the New York Times is so uh, it's tough I mean it's, it's almost tougher 
uh, in a place like Philadelphia than it is, say, in a small town where you do, you do get back to more of a monopoly type situation. Um, That's what so. I'm also concerned about as well. Those small, I mean, to some extent, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, they'll probably always survive in some fashion. Absolutely. And yeah. then, but then you got, you know, the, the big city papers like, you know, Philadelphia Daily News, uh, which obviously uh, struggling. But then there's that third level. There's that, you know, the really local content, the local reporters in the small towns. Um, I'm glad to hear you suggest they may be able to survive. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I get worried as we go sort of smaller and smaller and smaller about less and less and less reporting. Um, but uh, more to be worried about, Will Bunch. Let me take a quick break here and come back and talk to you about uh, what you describe as, let's see, the most dishonest, the most corrupt and the most dangerous president ever. Other than that, all is well. Speaking with Will Bunch from the Philadelphia Daily News, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with him right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We're speaking with uh, Will Bunch, who has for a long time been shining a light in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Daily News as their longtime columnist and senior writer and uh, author of their great Attitude blog, uh, which he describes as uber-opinionated and fair but dangerously unbalanced. I like that. Uh, Last week, as the uh, first 100 days of Trump's presidency approached, uh, we spoke with our old friend Heather Digby-Parton on the show uh, from Salon, and she and I generally tended to agree that the lack of ability uh, for the Donald Trump administration to pretty much accomplish any part of his agenda so far was almost as notable as what he has done in his first hundred days. Uh, she noted, however, his his minions at the DOJ, like Jeff Sessions and various uh, the various immigration services, have been able to do considerable damage, uh, if only to scare the hell out of a lot of uh, a lot of folks and deport a lot of folks. Uh, but even on things like climate change. Uh, you know, where he's promised to roll back tons of regulations. He's being challenged in court on almost every front. He hasn't been able to get any part of his legislative agenda through. Uh, and yet you, Will Bunch, you argued over the weekend that it will take years to undo just the damage that Trump has uh, been able to carry out in his first 100 days. You sort of break that down into three different reasons for that. So, Let's run through them, Will. Uh, you call him the most dishonest president ever. How has the, the damage from his uh, obvious uh, dishonesty, how is that harming us? How is that uh, going to be uh, you know, impossible to uh, put back together again after he is gone at some point? Well, it's certainly, you know, I, mean, I think, you know, I think 
I think the ultimate battle here is, you know, who controls the truth, right? Who who defines, the, you know, mm-hmm. can, you know, can we abolish the notion of objective truth so uh, I can try and convince people to believe my truth, right? And, you know, I mean, Trump, you know, Trump for all his failures may be winning that war to some degree. I mean, I don't know if you've seen, uh, you know, of course, there were a number of polls and surveys that came out with the 100 days. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, clearly, clearly Trump supporters uh, are sticking behind him. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, he got 45.9 or whatever percent of the vote in last November. You know, he'd probably get 43 or 44 percent of the vote at a, at a base minimum if it were held today. And but my point is, when you talk to those people, I mean, uh, uh, you know, they still believe Trump and they think that the media is the one that's that's coming in with fake, you know. I mean, I mean the emphasis in especially is is the 100 days have uh, gone on and become the second 100 days now. Uh you know, this emphasis on fake news. I mean, just today I saw that, you know, Trump's, you know, campaign or one of his super PACs or whatever was trying to buy ad time on CNN accusing CNN of being fake news, which CNN said, you know, I don't think we can actually run this ad, you know, but... Uh, uh, they but turned it down? CNN turned it down? Really? Yeah, yeah, they Good did. Yeah, yeah, check it out. It just happened this afternoon. It's pretty Good amazing. But, yeah. But, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you watched the rally that he held in, in Harrisburg Saturday night, which uh, I'm, uh, you know, as, as a glutton for punishment and somebody with no social life, <laughs> I actually actually watched this on TV. And, um <laughs> Um, uh, you know, it was the main thrust of it was, 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 was attacking the media. And, uh, you know, th- those, those 44% of Americans or whatever who support Trump, uh, almost to a man and woman, they think that the media is lying and making things up and, and Trump's telling the truth. And, um, uh, you know, so, so, uh, this effort just to destroy the notion of factual reality is, toxic you know i mean it it may not work for you or me or the people listening to the show Mm -hmm. but uh trust me it's having a toxic i believe Mm -hmm. it's having a real toxic effect uh you know and it's just having a it's it's certainly having a toxic effect on our reputation you know and 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 the notion of uh uh, you know and and on the dignity and the notion of the office of the presidency whatever and we've had some terrible presidents uh in our lifetime but uh at least even the worst ones, without naming names, you know, made made some concession to the idea that you know I'm gonna I'm gonna try and have some kind of factual context, even if I'm telling lies from time to time, right. uh, and that's and that's just gone, you know, that's just out the window. There's no, you know, there's no no fealty to the truth from from this crowd at all. So uh, you also uh, you also note on your second point, and and I agree that uh, that dishonesty and setting the standard for lying, I think, is going to be something that's very difficult to undo uh, in coming years. Uh, but you also uh, describe him uh, very quickly as the the most corrupt president ever. And I want to get to the dangerous part in a second. But but how has this corruption? Uh, I mean, it would seem obvious to me the level, the unprecedented level of uh, corruption here. But if it is corruption that people understand, that Congress understands, that the media understand, that the public understands, uh, does this ultimately uh, hurt us or are we just, uh, again, lowering the bar? Because, in fact, as corrupt as he is, nobody's really doing anything about it. He's not in court. He's not being impeached. He seems to be getting away with it. He does, and he does. He does seem to be getting away with it, and it's really shocking. You know, it's almost like, uh, you know, I, and I, I feel like any other president, if they do, if they did one of 
a hundred things that Trump did, the media would be, oh my God, you know, you know, President Smith did this one thing. Mm-hmm. That uh, we're going to we're going to assign all our reporters to dig out more about this one conflict of interest, or his, you know, pres- President Smith's tied to this one businessman or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Trump has dozens of conflicts of interest. He, he has ties to all kinds of shady business people, and I think we're shady dictators. You know, I mean, look at today's news. You know, he's inviting. Um, uh, you know, the president of the Philippines, who, um, you know, is, is one of the worst dictators out there, who uh, is committing massive uh, killing, murdering violations, people. Yeah. And murdering, murdering people, yeah. uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the name of this of this so-called war on drugs and, and, and totally depriving people of any kind of due process, uh, you know, just uh, just running death squads, basically. And, um, you know, Trump's got Trump's got a Trump's got a, a project in, in Manila, right? Trump Towers, mm-hmm. Philippines or Manila. And uh uh, his business partner is an ally of the president, and um, uh, you know, and, and the same thing happened in Turkey and Erdogan. You know, Erdogan went to the opening of Trump Towers, Istanbul. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it would be troubling enough just if we had a president who had business relationships in these countries. But the reality is, you know, he's he seems to be, they seem to be having an actual effect on the policies he makes. He makes, you know, I mean, yep. I mean, what's going on with Trump and China? I mean, he, you know, he, you know, he ran on this campaign that he was going to be tough on China, that they were currency manipulators. Uh, then when, then when he was elected, he said, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scrap the one China policy. And, you know, he made all these threats. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, uh, China approved some trademarks for Trump's business. Uh, you know, they approved trademarks for Ivanka's business. It, you know, it turns out Ivanka, you know, is producing you know a great deal of her product over there in China, and 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 is trying to establish herself in that market. And all of a sudden, everything's changed. You know, the the the, the president of China is wonderful, and of course, we're not going to get rid of the one China policy, and and they're not currency manipulators. And and look. I mean, first of all, all of those decisions. Uh, well, I don't. I don't think the president's a great guy, but I think all those other decisions may well be the right thing to do. Number one, and and you know, um, but um, uh, I mean, the appearance is so bad. You just cannot separate the government's actions from the president's business relationships, and, and you can't. You can't. You just can't say with with a hundred percent certainty. This decision was made 100% in the public's interest, and 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 not because Trump was worried that he was going to lose his trademark, or not because uh, you know that they were going to stop letting Ivanka import her uh, handbags or whatever the heck it is she makes over there. You know, so so. Um, and um, you're right. As of now, uh, nothing has been done about that, as far as you know, Congress expressing outrage, holding hearings. It does seem like it has lowered the bar. For all future presidents, at least uh, at least for a future Republican president. I mean, I can't I can't imagine Hillary Clinton carrying off uh, this kind of business at the same time had she been president and, you know, uh, uh, putting Chelsea in charge of, uh, you know, all sorts of policy. Uh, th- I mean, she would have been, uh, you know, raked she would, she would have been she would have been, cruci- she would yeah. been crucified. Yeah, I know. Exactly. But the uh, uh, I, I, yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, the, uh, this is uh, obviously a failure of uh, of the Republicans to actually care about it to bring this uh, these investigations forward. I know that Democrats would, but uh, your third point, uh, calling him uh, calling Trump the most dangerous president president ever. You write the resistance has little ability, none really, to thwart the most awesome power we've given to American presidents in the national security state that arose after World War II, which is the power to make war and peace, but mostly war. And here is a place where, um, you know, I've got to fault uh, Democrats as well, uh, because the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans in Congress even now, have shown little interest in debating military actions in places like Syria, uh, much less, you know, giving legal authorization for an attack on a sovereign country like Syria, no matter what you think of Syria and the chemical attack and, and who did it and who didn't. The fact of the matter is we do have a constitution, and that constitution is quite clear about who gets to declare war. That's Congress, and that is something that's going back for It seems a long time now that uh, both Democrats and Republicans alike, but especially in this example in in Syria, they're not only not calling Donald Trump out for bombing a sovereign nation without authority, they're actually applauding him for it. Yeah, it's really, I, I, I think that's such a good point, Brad. It really is. You know, I mean, it's really stunning. I mean, even even the uh, even the so-called left wing of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. you know, Bernie Sanders and, and um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, uh, they they were not particularly critical. Particularly, I, I think I think Bernie Sanders said he was okay with it. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, it is it, it, a, a strong and a powerful voice. As Bernie Sanders is on economic justice, I mean, I mean, we we need a we need a Bernie Sanders type figure in foreign policy. I think to you know mm-hmm. may, you know maybe maybe if Paul Wellstone had lived or you mm-hmm. know somebody like that. I mean, if you, you you think back in the past, I think there would have been some senators who would have been standing up and saying, you know, uh, people who came out of the Vietnam era certainly I would think. But um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, there really is this. Um, presumption of just going along with anything on, on foreign policy and there's no there's no show of strength i, I mean it, you know it, it, as i wrote about several times i mean the media's performance after the bombing of syria was just just horrendous in mm-hmm. terms of cheerleading uh you know and 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 how you know you know dropping bombs on this airstrip made made trump and all his all his foibles suddenly look presidential you know it's mm-hmm. uh, it, it's just it's it's frustrating and it's absurd and, and and the other thing and i just can't stress this enough is i mean there's a lot of other stuff that's going on with just no scrutiny at all i mean he's really uh he's really given uh generals and military leaders a lot of leeway to uh, increase the use of force all over the place, you know, in, in, in Mosul and Iraq and, and uh, in the parts of Syria where we're uh, supposedly fighting against ISIS. Um, uh, you know, these, these wars are being waged with more brutality since Trump became president, and um, the number of civilian casualties caused by U.S. bombs increased dramatically. And it's kind of funny, you know, I mean, we, 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 you know, we, had, we were involved in these bombing raids in, in the Mosul area of Iraq, uh, that killed uh, dozens, or I believe, I believe a couple hundred, if I'm not mistaken, uh, civilians in, in these actions, uh, got almost no media coverage. Whereas the Syria strike gets, you know, you know, was mm-hmm. interrupt the primetime TV shows, and you know, was was, uh, you know, got got wall to wall coverage. So, um, so I so I think there's I think you know there's a lot going on with Trump and and foreign policy, but basically. 
already we've seen in 103 days that that the uh, the error always is on the side of escalation. You know, it's always it, it's always more force, more escalating. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I said Obama was soft, so I'm going to show the world that I'm tough. And uh, you know, and we're seeing this brinksmanship in in, in North Korea, and North Korea is a, a bad, tough situation. I mean, nobody wants to see them testing nuclear bombs and firing. No, but the, but it's the message, but the message that we have sent, I think, with Syria. Uh, is that, hey, whatever the president decides to do, we're okay with that. We don't have to uh, approve it. We don't have to debate it. I mean, they're not even debating these things in Congress, not even discussing these things in Congress. And what, and what, is, the, what is the authorization for attacking Syria, Assad? I mean, I mean the, uh, Congress, passed, Congress passed an authorization of use and force way back in 2001, which is, I mean, you know, my... my 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 son is graduating college this month. was was in was in kindergarten or first grade when when nine eleven happened, right? You know, mm-hmm. and and this is this this is the use of force that they're that they're using um, uh, authorization that they're using to justify wars all over the world. You know, in in Somalia and in Africa and in Yemen and and and, and in all these you know in all these countries, this is the authorization. And uh, first it was Al Qaeda, then it's like, well, ISIS is kind of like Al Qaeda, but now <laughs> now we attack the government of. Bashar al-Assad. That has nothing to do with. I mean, they're well, technically, the, I guess, and you know, they're I fighting. Mean, they're uh, will. They're fighting Al Qaeda. Right. That's what I was just about to say. Yeah. Exactly. That they, you know that. Uh, uh, so so so. What's the author, authorization? There is none. And 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 why why will no one stand up? Like I, I'm agreeing with your point here. Why will nobody stand up and say that? I mean, it's just stunning. Well, uh, I'm saying it. we got to start somewhere. <laughs> uh, it, really, I mean, because this is, in, 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 that, in, in that sense, I think that uh, the, the first hundred days here of the Trump presidency has uh, accomplished something that's going to uh, be very, very expensive. Uh, even, uh, you know, with Democratic and Republican presidents alike setting this bar that, hey, if the president wants to do it, if there are images out there that are bad enough on TV and the president wants to respond militarily, uh, hey, we we let Trump do it. So why shouldn't we let anybody else? Well, I got to get out. I'm running late. I love talking to you. Always great to talk to you. Let's not wait. Same, same here, Brad. Yeah. Thanks, man. We will not wait so many years until we do it again. Will Bunch uh, from the uh, Philadelphia Daily News, uh, the great attitude blog. Don't miss it. You should also follow him on the Twitters at Will underscore Bunch. Thanks, Will. Really appreciate it today. Thanks, Brad. Anytime. You bet. Okay, I think today is one of those days when I leave with uh, more questions than I had when I went in. Yes, but they're good questions. (laughs) They are good questions. Maybe we'll open up the phone lines tomorrow and and get some thoughts on on the New York Times and on the idea of what's more important, sending a message to the New York Times or keeping the failing New York Times in business uh, when we need papers like theirs now more than ever. Uh, all right, we got to get out. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to, of course, my guest today, Will Bunch of the Philadelphia Daily News, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com, though we do appreciate those of you who are able to stop by bradblog.com slash donate and help us continue to do what uh, what we try to do here every day. And what I have long argued uh, is now more important than ever. 
So uh, thanks to those of you who have done that. And uh, let's see. Oh, you can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find me and follow me and share us far and wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That is it. Until tomorrow, when I look forward to talking to you once again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.